Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This is just a piece of the puzzle, so we're giving you information you never had before. Let's talk about the relationship between Gestalt and clinical decision rules. Our goal and our responsibility is to make sure these tools are as good as or better than the judgment of a a seasoned clinician. We want to do what's in the best interest of the patient and not the doctor or his insurance company. Use these rules appropriately, know the inclusion-exclusion criteria. So for those kind of scales, we're not advocating there's a threshold at which you must do this or that. Ian is rolling his eyes. <laughs> they can't see it, but they'll probably feel it over the airwaves. CDRs are insanely popular among researchers. The number of papers discussing prediction rules more than doubled between 1995 and 2005 to a whopping 15,662 papers, and I'm guessing may have doubled since then. This huge body of CDR literature can be overwhelming for the EM provider. It seems that there's a clinical decision rule with a nifty mnemonic for just about everything, CURB-65, CHADS-2, ISS, Nexus, PCARN, the list goes on and on and on. Now, some CDRs have been shown to be more accurate than physician judgment alone, while others have not. Some are rigorously developed and validated, and others aren't. Some are so complicated that no EM practitioner could be expected to remember them, while others are simple and easily memorized. Some docs use CDRs in many clinical situations, while others feel that they're experienced enough that they don't need CDRs to help them in their clinical decision-making. Of course, we all know intuitively that not all the clinical decisions we make in the ED can be predicted by a clinical decision rule. We'd all be out of work otherwise. Nonetheless, if we use clinical prediction rules intelligently, I think there's a huge value to them. So, to help us sort through how to use CDRs intelligently, to improve our EM diagnostic skills and incorporate them into our practice, it's my pleasure and my honor to introduce, in Ottawa, my alma mater, and home of the beaver tail, the father, or should I say daddy of CDRs, Dr. Ian Steele. Welcome, Dr. Steele. Thank you, Anton, for that very nice introduction. My mother will be thrilled. (laughs) And to help us sort through things from a practicing ED doc's perspective, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Hans Rosenberg, the brains behind the fantastic EM Ottawa blog. Thank you very much, Anton. Happy to be here. And average doc is exactly where I'd like to practice. So (laughs) we're perfect. Oh, I'm sure not. (laughs) All right. I'd like to start off the podcast with a case before we jump into our core discussion of clinical decision rules. So here it is. A 60-year-old woman with a history of COPD comes in with a three-day history of increasing shortness of breath, worsening cough, productive of thick green sputum and a low-grade fever. She has no cardiac history, but does have a history of renal impairment and anemia of chronic disease. She appears to be in mild respiratory distress with a resp rate of 28 and an O2-sat of 88% on room air. Her heart rate and blood pressure are normal. ECG shows no signs of ischemia. The chest x-ray is unchanged from previous. 
Her trope is negative, and her hemoglobin is stable at 95. After a few nebs, IV steroids, and antibiotics, she says she feels better and wants to go home. The question is, should this patient be discharged or admitted? Now, before we give you the answer, we're going to delve into CDRs, and then we'll come back to the case at the end. So let's start our discussion on clinical decision instruments with our first question, and that is, Dr. Steele, what conditions or clinical questions are suitable for clinical decision tools, instruments, or rules, whatever you want to call them? So we've been developing these rules for quite a few years, and as you probably know, we started off with rather simple questions. Does this patient have an ankle fracture? this patient have a broken neck? And in those days, we definitely called them decision rules. And the basis for those cases were situations that were really common, people with twisted ankles, sore knees. So you need a a condition that's really common where there's some perceived inefficiency or overuse or underuse of uh, imaging or other resources. And the question can be, likely answered with just a handful of clinical variables. So lots of other things that we see are too uncommon or too complicated really to allow you to come up with a clinical decision rule, which we define as a decision-making tool for practitioners using simple bedside clinical information and basic tests. So as it started, it was with, as you said, simple diagnoses. Nowadays, what are CDRs good for? More recently, though, our group here has gotten into much more complex conditions where we're trying to identify the risk or likelihood the patient will have a bad outcome. They might die or or do really poorly if they're sent home. So we're starting to call these more complicated rules risk scales, and we have a number of those on the go here in Ottawa for heart failure, COPD, TIA, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and syncope, where you can't just come out and say, yes or no, this patient needs admission, for example. We come up with a scoring system that shows you the likelihood that patient will have a bad outcome, and then it's up to the physician to figure out in their own setting if the patient should be admitted or not. So they're a little less directive than the old yes-no type of decision rules. Right, so similar to the well score for pulmonary embolism then. exactly. So, I mean, as a practicing physician, I think the biggest thing for me is when we see these CDRs or, or decision instruments or scales, it's you want things that are going to be helpful in your everyday practice. So as Ian mentioned, when you have some very rare, rare diseases, even though they're extremely high risk, they're extremely hard to study and then are not that useful for some of these common things that we're seeing every single day. You know, if you work a shift in your OBS or emergent area, you're going to see some COPD, you're going to see CHF, you're going to see... and what. I like about these sort of new scales that give you a little bit more of a a range is you can talk in a common language with your admitting services as well, which I find that it can be quite helpful. So you can say, you know, listen, if we look at the evidence, this person has a 15% chance of having a bad event in the next week, in the next month, and that could be something that's quite risky or dangerous. So the way that things are moving in that direction into sort of going from the yes and no to these types of questions seems to be quite helpful for the everyday practice. So that touches a bit on how we should use clinical decision instruments at the bedside. Dr. Steele, can you elaborate on that a bit? So can you just run us through an example of how you'd use one of your newer CDRs at the bedside? 
So looking at the scales I've been working on lately for heart failure and COPD, there has been no evidence, no guidelines on who needs to be admitted. So our hope is that by adding up a risk score based on simple findings from the history physical and your routine lab tests, when you're starting to contemplate disposition, have a pretty good idea from a medical point of view how safe it might be for this patient to go home. And this isn't a yes-no thing. So we're not directing you to admit or not admit because there's so many other factors such as the patient's social situation. Do they live alone? Is there really good follow-up in your hospital for heart failure patients? Or is it like ours where there's no follow-up and you don't really know what's going to happen to the patient? So the older clinical decision rules like the Ottawa Ankle Rule are based on simple yes-no questions. Does this patient need an x-ray or not? in relatively simple clinical situations. Dr. Steele's newer risk scales take more complex diagnoses such as COPD and CHF and give us a short list of clinical variables that have been identified as the most predictive of poor outcomes. We add up which variables the patient has and it spits out a number that can help us predict whether or not the patient will have a poor outcome. These newer risk scales can help us in our disposition decisions in combination with other factors such as the patient's living situation and the type of follow-up your hospital has for patients with COPD or CHF, for example. Next, we're going to discuss the effect of clinical gestalt or clinical judgment on CDRs and risk scales and whether gestalt should be incorporated into them or not. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah. When it comes to making decisions at the bedside, gestalt plays a role in how we make decisions. Let's talk about the relationship between gestalt and clinical decision rules. There's some risk scores like the well score, I believe, that includes gestalt in the score itself. And there's some risk scores that don't include gestalt. There's some docs who say that clinical gestalt should trump any rule. What's your take on the relationship between gestalt and the clinical decision instrument? No, I I call it clinical judgment, and I'm all for it. And and my beef with modern eMERGE docs is they don't use it at all. They're just brought up and trained to order imaging on everybody's CT scans, regardless of whatever. So they're not really thinking very carefully about the patient. And that, I think, is a shame because we're highly skilled diagnosticians, and we do have the skill to predict the outcome of patients. So I'm all for that, but I don't think it's well described. And I think a lot of doctors aren't really using their judgment often making these decisions. So we've studied this over the years, and it's certainly true that for a seasoned, experienced doctor, he may feel that these new decision tools are unnecessary. I would argue that trainees, residents, young doctors... They don't have the experience yet to know. And I would say the other problem is if you send home a patient with heart failure and they relapse, get admitted to another hospital, you might not really know what happens to them. So that's the difficulty. So we don't have the feedback on these kind of conditions to really fine-tune our judgment. And our goal and our responsibility is to make sure these tools are as good as or better than the judgment of a seasoned clinician. And then those clinical decision instruments that include gestalt in them, what's your take on that? I mean, is that something that we should be doing when we develop clinical decision rules? Or is that something that you think should stay out of clinical decision rules? 
we try to be super precise because when it comes to imaging, we notice doctors will find any out. If they want to image, they will use any excuse. Like there's some unnamed decision rules for C-spine that rely on a couple of variables that we found very unreliable, such as a distracting painful injury. We studied that and we found that the inter-observer agreement for distracting painful injury between two staff docs was really low. So if you add an element of gestalt, that's almost like allowing you to do whatever you want. And so we avoid that. We're trying to provide evidence-based variables that from examining thousands of cases, we know that they're useful. And sometimes they're not what we expected them to be. You mentioned the Wells rules, which the only real gestalt there is asking, is there some other condition that's more likely, but you got to name it. You can't just say, well, there's probably something else. So I guess I'm not that keen on incorporating gestalt. I think if they're taught in the appropriate way, as uh, Dr. Steele mentioned, you're going to be able to get those medical students and residents and young staff to actually sort of codify these aspects of the history, the physical exam, or some objective findings on, on their labs that are then later on going to be sort of second nature to you. So you may not be reliant on the rule in the sense that you look and you go, okay, this person's risk is 16.7% of having a bad event, but you know sort of off the top of your head almost that these are some of the worrisome findings when the person can't walk a certain distance and you do it sort of naturally. So it incorporates into your clinical gestalt or into your clinical judgment without thinking of it strictly as a rule that you're going to have to have to follow. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I find if someone asks me, what's your gestalt in terms of the likelihood of this patient having this diagnosis, and they want me to say, is it 5% or 15% or 25%, and I find that a really hard thing to do to try and actually nail down a number. Dr. Rosenberg, what's your experience? Yeah, I agree. Certainly looking at something like the PERC rule where they do say, I think, you know, it's sort of a pretest probability of 15% or less before you should be applying. It's hard for me to know, is it five? Is it 10? Is it 15? Is it 20? I'm not sure. So that can be a little bit of a hard instrument to use for me. And Dr. Rosenberg, can you give us some examples of clinical decision instruments that have been shown to be better than clinical gestalt and ones that have not been shown to be better than clinical gestalt? So in terms of the ones that haven't been shown, I think over and over, when you look at the PE data, that's sort of the spot where I've seen it most of the time where they say that a clinician's gestalt judgment is equivalent to using one of these rules where you can actually put them in sort of a low likelihood or or likely versus unlikely and then go on to do your objective finding like the D-dimer testing. The subarachnoid hemorrhage rule was equivalent pretty much but looking back at the ankle rules and looking at the C-spine rules those were ones where I think the the rules were more accurate than clinician judgment on those. Now, whether they're applied appropriately and whether it actually cuts down on imaging is a different story because Dr. Steele mentioned people are sometimes looking for a reason to do a test. For whatever reason, you're worried about a bad outcome, you're worried about a medical legal aspect or whatever it is, and then you go, ah, they're negative for the ankle rules, but I'm still going to x-ray them. Much to Ian's chagrin. (laughs) Ian is rolling his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) They can't see it, but they probably feel it over over the airwaves. I alluded to this in the introduction of the podcast. There's literally hundreds of clinical decision rules out there of variable quality. Dr. Steele, at what point 
during the development and implementation of a clinical decision rule, is it, quote, ready for prime time? Well, there's a pretty good literature on that, actually. And there may be hundreds of these rules, but very few have been studied adequately. So the oldest one we ever did was the auto ankle rule. So it's been the most studied. So we, first of all, did a series of studies. We derived it on a large cohort. Then we validated it prospectively where the doctors actually had the rule and they ticked it off and then the x-ray was done. And that worked well. So then we did two implementation studies, uh, one in Ottawa, then a multi-center Ontario study where the doctors are actually asked to use the rule and follow it. And that's where you show if they're actually going to pay attention and if it works. And in both those cases, we substantially reduced use of imaging. So very few rules have gone through those phases of derivation, validation, implementation. And then there's a lot of post-study stuff you want to do in terms of trying to figure out the barriers to adoption. And we, we put a lot of research into that also. Why is it doctors like this one, but they don't like that one? So some of what I've just said is encapsulated certainly in the current JAMA user's guide to the medical literature, which is just coming out, I believe, with the latest edition shortly. But they have a little chapter on clinical prediction rules, as they like to call them, which identifies at what point the rule is ready to be used. And certainly our belief here in Ottawa is that you shouldn't be using it till it's at least been prospectively validated. So a lot of things are validated statistically. They do a split sample or they go back and do a bunch of chart reviews. And we don't like that. We think proper validation is the doctors have this thing in their hand and they understand it, and then they score the patient on it. And then we see if it actually works. So that's what we call prospective explicit validation. So that would be the bare minimum before you could start to use it. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned the barriers to using the mm -hmm. clinical decision rules. What have you found in your research and just from practical experience and feedback from people? What are the barriers to using clinical decisions? We've done a lot of research and written several papers trying to figure out what are the barriers and facilitators to these rules. I speak a lot in the U.S. and they have all their own barriers such as they're terrified of being sued so they pretty well image everybody and they like rules that permit them to image everybody <laughs> like the New Orleans head rule. That doesn't apply in Canada so much. We're not terrified of being sued. But we have all our other concerns that the patient demands this test and again our research shown that's not the case. If you take 30 seconds and explain to them this has been studied and having examined you, I know for sure you don't have a broken neck and there's no need to keep you around for another hour to do testing. Yeah, that's very consistent with the podcast we just released on oh, yeah. patient-centered communication. Yeah. And really, if you communicate well with your patients yeah. and you make a shared decision, then I think if you just spend that time... It might be a little bit more time-consuming, a little bit more difficult to go through that whole process than just ordering the test, but it's probably better for the patient in the long run. Well, yeah, and it's better for the department, actually. And I think sometimes doctors, you know, if they're timid and say, well, I don't think there's a fracture, you know, probably not. You know, what do you think? Should we do an x-ray? Then the patient's not going to be so comfortable with what they're being told, and they may push for the x-ray. Again, it's the, yeah, the communication is, is And key the confidence of the clinician. A lot of this is clinical confidence, really. Before we even did all these rules, there were sites with hardly ever ordered imaging. 
because that was the way they were trained in their culture. We used to study the variation, and we'd look at one site, and they would CT everybody. Another site hardly ever CT'd, and it was just the physician's uh, upbringing and culture. And it's not that the low orders missed anything. They didn't. I think the discussion, whether you, you know a younger physician or, or you've been working for 30 years, I will often tell the patient and say, listen, we've actually developed these rules right here, you know, with patients just like yourself. And it turns out you won't have a fracture or you won't have a bleed in the brain that we need to worry about. So there's no point of exposing you to the radiation or making you wait an hour and then I get caught up with a longer case. And then all of a sudden you're waiting two, three hours for something that you never needed. And to be honest, I think it'd be probably about 95% of patients are more than happy with that response. They're relieved and they go home relatively happy and so rare has it been the patient that goes, I still really want that x-ray. Everyone in Ottawa is so nice. <laughs> but there is a real benefit to the department in that there's no doubt if you may think you're saving time, you know, just order the image. And that's what we used to do with ankles. I joke mm-hmm. that in the old days, we just go in to decide if it was left or right to put on the requisition <laughs> without even <laughs> touching the patient. But then the patient comes back and you got to look at the image and then you got to talk to him again. And, and that does kind of slow down the process, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. And you've done some unnecessary imaging, possibly. Absolutely. On the other extreme, you know, we're so protocol-driven and algorithm-driven and clinical decision rule-driven, which is mostly a good thing. Someone comes in with chest pain, ECG's normal, two sets of troponin, out the door. You don't even have to think about it. Now, obviously, there's going to be exceptions to that. Just because statistically it shows that, yeah, that person's chance of having an MI in the next 30 days is less than a couple of percent. There is an argument to be made that we shouldn't just be blindly following algorithms. I think it's a good point. I think if it's something as simple as ankle x-ray, then get over it because there's lots of evidence. If it's something complicated like admitting a heart failure patient, this is just a piece of the puzzle. So we're giving you information you never had before. You never knew the probability of that outcome because there was no data on that before. Chest pain is really tough because we know the stakes are pretty high. And it's not always so simple as, you know, one ECG and two tropes, depending on their past history and also the nature of the pain and and a whole bunch of other things that kind of soften that. So I'm not so sure that we'll ever have a perfect chest pain rule. Yeah, I mean, that brings up risk tolerance, you know, we're never going to be able to rule out every single MI and we're going to send home a fraction of 1% of people or maybe a little bit higher in Canada. You know, there's that balance between doing a CT angiogram for the coronary arteries for every single patient who walks in with a chest. For chest pain, I, I really like to compare what we do in Canada versus the U.S. And as you know, they all have chest pain units and nobody goes home till they've had stress test of some kind, whether it be nuclear or exercise stress testing. They don't go home. So to me, that system has gone crazy because they're not doing it for the best interest of the patient. They're trying to avoid being sued because I guess a lawsuit for a missed MI is really expensive. So the hospitals allow these units. What we do here in Ottawa is we risk stratify by the history and repeat enzymes and ECGs, and those that were comfortable, we send them home. And they'll probably have their stress test within two weeks. 
And to our knowledge, that's a very safe process, but it would not fly in the U.S. I like to think the Canadian system is better in that we want to do what's in the best interest of the patient and not the doctor or his insurance company. So as we've been alluding to a little bit, sometimes clinical decision instruments can lead us astray. I just want to quote David Newman and David Schreiger from the Annals of Emergency Medicine article in 2011 entitled, Medical Decision-Making, Let's Not Forget the Physician. And it says, in quotes, in studies of D-dimer for pulmonary embolism, a validated clinical decision aid for minor head injury, clinical guidelines for imaging in low back pain, and a validated decision aid to reduce ankle imaging, risk stratification rules have led to increase in the use of imaging resources. Dr. Steele, why is this, and how can we use CDRs appropriately so that this doesn't happen and we get the most out of our CDRs? I'm just trying Ready, to get, my heart, set, get my heart rate down here. Well, first of all, these are, are U.S. docs, and the head rule that led to increased imaging surely is the New Orleans criteria because it's basically a license to CT everybody. Our uh, Canadian CT head rule certainly show that you really only have to image between 40 and 60% of people who've had a concussion. They listed ankle rules, so I don't understand that because 10 years ago there was a meta-analysis done by Dr. Bachman et al. in Switzerland. I never met the gentleman, but he did a meta-analysis of 32 studies that have been done worldwide on the auto ankle rule, and they absolutely showed the accuracy of it. And all our data, our actual implementation studies, showed a decrease. So the impact of these rules depends on how good they are, how well they've been developed, whether they've been tested in terms of in the field, do they really change things and how well they're communicated out to the doctors. So I'm not quite sure where they're coming from. So I would ignore that article. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So with with the utmost respect here, I just want to clarify. You're just trying to get me riled up. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. (laughs) In the subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, correct me if I'm wrong, it's my understanding that it actually increased CT utilization? That is Dr. Jeff Perry's work. I'm a co-investigator. So he has derived this head rule for uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage and has validated it and revalidated it. So he's done a lot of work on that. And the issue there is that he was striving for 100% sensitivity the way we used to for a broken neck. And that seems pretty reasonable that you're not going to be too thrilled with a rule that misses 5% of subarachnoid hemorrhages. So at this point in time, the only way he could achieve a really high sensitivity for subarachnoid was to accept a low specificity, which means that you have to image, you have to work up, which is CT plus or minus LP, depending on when the CT was done, majority of patients. So that may not be a bad thing because certainly in Canada, and more likely in smaller centers, these subarachnoids are missed and patients come to harm. So it may be that the safest practice will have to be to increase the imaging or the workup. And I would say this is exactly what we're seeing, say, with heart failure patients, that we developed our Ottawa heart failure risk scale at six Canadian 
university emergency departments, so from various provinces, but very big teaching hospitals. And we found the overall admission rate was a shocking 38% of people with acute decompensated heart failure. And the Americans that I talked to were blown away by that because they admit 80 to 100% of people. And we found of all the adverse events, 50% occurred in people who were sent home from the ED. And we know why we send them home, because there's no beds. And if we don't, then medicine will, or however. Where we have learned that to be safe, we may have to admit more patients. So if you really want to look after your patients safely, you may have to accept more admissions in your center. And Dr. Rosenberg, from your perspective on the floor, what are some of the reasons that CDRs can lead people astray? So I think one of the biggest things and one of the errors that I've made before and surely after getting my hand slapped by Dr. Steele, I no longer make them. But I think being unaware of the complete inclusion and exclusion That was criteria, only when you were a resident. We're not allowed to slap you around anymore right. once you're faculty, right? Only as a resident. <laughs> but I think the biggest thing is knowing the inclusion and exclusion criteria. And, that, and I know that that has led me astray before. So both assuming that in certain, you know, certain patients were not included, for example, in CT head rules where you could actually apply them to patients who were inebriated, who are common patients who come in with head injury. So I actually had that wrong as a resident, I remember, and inappropriately not using the rule and then therefore doing a CT head on every single inebriated patient who hit their head pretty much, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and I know that I, that I made that mistake before. And then some of the exclusion criteria are also very important because if you're not aware of them, I think you can really fail the patient and you're sort of sending somebody home who maybe you shouldn't. I mean, it's a bit of an extreme example, but the anticoagulated patient with a head injury, obviously, as a younger resident or early staff, you may not be aware that that was sort of part of the exclusion criteria. And all of a sudden, you're applying the completely wrong instrument to a patient that could lead to a fair bit of harm. So I I think that that's the biggest thing. And you need to know what the inclusion exclusion criteria were quite well, if not better than the rule. It sounds like we need an app to uh, tell us what the exclusion and inclusion criteria are for all of Dr. Steele's clinical decision rules. I agree completely. So we blew it when we first put these out. I'm talking particularly the Canadian CT head rule and the Canadian C-spine rule that we didn't make it clear enough to whom these rules actually apply. And uh, the one that's most obvious now to me is the CT head rule. We did two studies of over 5,000 patients and the inclusion criteria was they had to have a concussion, i.e. they were observed to be unconscious or they were amnestic for the event or they were observed to be confused at the scene. So if they had less than that, like they just bumped their head with no loss of consciousness, we didn't even study them because we assumed they didn't need a CT. So now I regularly see my own residents wanting to image people who don't even get into the rule. And the same goes for C-spine rules. We have medics bordering and collaring people, and they get to the hospital, and you have a wide-awake guy who fell you know, off a chair and broke his ankle, and he never had neck pain, but he comes in with a collar on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my junior residents are actually seem to believe that if they take the collar off, the guy's head will fall off at the They'll same time. So yeah. they're uh, terrified to even assess him, and, and which is a real shame because having been doing this for a couple of years, I've noticed that <laughs> you can easily tell. The C-spine is for an alert and stable cooperative patient, and you can easily tell if he has neck pain. And if he has no neck pain, then no imaging. All this talk about, you know, you got to scan everybody because you might miss a fracture of the C-spine. These are for unconscious 
trauma, multiple trauma patients. They're not talking about the 90% of people that we see after an MVC who are quite alert and, and very stable. You can assess them. Agreed. And I think that this sort of gets into the knowledge translation side of things where, Anton, you mentioned maybe in a little bit of the process of trying to develop some applications or some, some knowledge translation tools that can actually help people where you can have the inclusion criteria, you can have the exclusion criteria. Maybe we even have a tiny short video of Dr. Steele explaining how to use the, uh, apply the rule appropriately. And these are just sort of different ways that people are going to be able to use these rules appropriately, know the inclusion exclusion criteria. I mean, it's stuff you can study for an exam, but if you're a working physician after years, despite as, as intelligent as some people are, most of uh, you know the average folk like myself need some of these tools to help us out. So I think it's going to be a combination of some of these newer things like applications or, or web tools that we can actually use and help us remind us of some of the characteristics that are appropriate to use for these patients. So until we have some incredible app out there that has all the best CDRs in the world with all their inclusion and exclusion criteria listed that you can use at the bedside, we will have all of Dr. Steele's best CDRs with their inclusion and exclusion criteria on the EM Cases website. And not only that, the EM Cases app, which is the Agile MD app, you can just go to the iTunes store and download it for free. The Agile MD app has all the EM cases written summaries, and the written summary for this episode will include all of Dr. Steele's CDRs with all their inclusion and exclusion criteria. So Dr. Steele, you had been talking about how some of the work you're doing now is on risk stratification more than rule in, rule out. Could you explain to our listeners how you might be led astray if you don't really understand that distinction? We just finished a CAPE survey of CAPE doctors' attitudes and impressions of the the two new scales, the COPD and the heart failure scales. And uh, there were a few comments that said, well, I don't want to admit everybody with a score of two. Well, we never said that. Nowhere. We just said, if you have a score of two, your risk of bad outcome might be 8.3%, and that's information for you to use. So for those kind of scales, we're not advocating there's a threshold at which you must do this or that. So I guess where physicians could be led astray is if they use the COPD rule or the CHF rule to say, okay, this patient can go home definitely because his score is one or two. Not taking into account that the guy is low intelligent, lives alone, has no family doctor, and hasn't taken his meds for the last two weeks, you know, none of which is in the uh, risk scale. Yeah, yeah, just like you said, it's just a piece of the puzzle then. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then finally, when talking about being led astray, Dr. Rosenberg, can you help the listeners distinguish between a one-way rule and a two-way rule? So, for example, the PERC rule is a one-way rule where you're ruling out but it doesn't help you rule in. Or a two-way rule would be like the Ottawa ankle rules. Can you just explain that to our listeners, how that yeah, works? Yeah, I mean, essentially with the PERC rule, all it allows you to do is not investigate the patient further versus when you're thinking of the Ottawa ankle rule, then that's something that allows you, it's, it's dichotomous in a way that it's two x-ray or not two x-ray, and you can kind of go both ways with that. I find those can sometimes be a little bit more helpful and often a bit more palatable to physicians. And even through some of my colleagues, I know that that's been a hard sort of pill to swallow with the PERC rule, that they find that if it, especially when it's not applied appropriately, all of a sudden you went, okay, they're PERC positive, now I've got to do a CT. 
and that's that's as you said sort of they lead us can lead us astray going back sort of that that previous point they jump from one conclusion to the other well i can't rule out pe so i must do the the final investigation rather than thinking of something like wells criteria and how that would apply to the patient before we leave the topic of being led astray (laughs) (laughs) we'd never do that to you (laughs) can you give me some examples of how clinical decision rules could be applied to the wrong population. Patients on an oral anticoagulants were excluded from our CT head rule because we knew they were uncommon and we just assumed they were automatically high risk. So if somebody you know had missed that part, that footnote, and ignored the fact they were on warfarin, they could be led astray. I doubt that's happening, but that's a okay. possibility. So that, that comes back to the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Well, yeah, just understanding to whom this rule is actually intended for. And this whole idea of trying to decide, is there really a diagnostic dilemma? If a patient is 23 and fell down playing rugby and has pain on their left chest from a bruised rib, you don't need a chest pain rule, yet I bet you lots of those cases end up in chest pain units because you can go hog wild (laughs) if you apply some of this stuff to the wrong patient. I'd like to talk a little bit more about barriers to using CDRs. We had talked a little bit about litigation. We had talked about how some CDRs that have a huge long list are difficult to remember, which hopefully we won't have to worry about anymore because we can use technology to help us in that. What do you see as some of the other barriers to using CDRs? So some doctors say they don't have time. It takes too long to apply this, which I don't get whatsoever. And it really does take longer if you put the patient through imaging and reassess them. Some will say, well, I can skip this C-spine image, but when the patient's admitted to ortho for a broken ankle, they're going to insist on it. And I've seen that myself. Oh, they'll go, there's a distracting injury. And you go, you're reusing the wrong rule. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) That unnamed, well, you did mention it, but uh, (laughs) I forgive you. (laughs) We also have the nurses in in a number of Ontario hospitals using the C-spine rule to clear patients as they come in. And for them, some of it, The barrier is the doctors don't buy it. They don't trust the nurses. And these are doctors perhaps that don't believe the rules. I would say our biggest failure as a study was the CT head implementation. We did a 12-center, multi-center implementation of the Canadian CT head rule, and we could not bring down imaging. The rule was accurate, easy to understand, just had a few points. And this was in distinction to the C-spine rule where we had imaging cut down to 50%. When it came to a CT head, the doctors would not cut down their imaging. And we tried to figure that one out. And my belief is that eMERGE docs didn't see the point of avoiding imaging. They still have this fear they're going to miss something, which they will not with the rule or that the CT is there, I can get it, I can have the nurse order it, why not do it? So we failed to actually bring down CT use, and I think that study was going upstream against the flow of physician enthusiasm with uh, CT heads, and certainly the way our young docs are being trained, that's not going to change anytime soon. The only thing that's helping now is this emerging notion that you have too many CTs, your cancer risk is going up. So when they have the catch rule for CT in kids, they don't have any problem because the moms are probably going to squawk if they do suggest a CT. That kind of thinking hasn't really taken firm hold, I think, in the adult side yet, but 
it's coming. I do think that that's probably been a barrier before. And even again, you know, I haven't been practicing that long, but even as a resident thinking, well, who cares? It's a CT. But then as you kind of learn. You weren't a taxpayer then. Uh, I wasn't. <laughs> very little anyway. Um, all my all my school credits from so much debt. But I think what's happened now is that we are more aware of radiation risk. So I think even something as simple as a CT head, we're now thinking twice about it. We'll talk to the residents. The residents will say, hey, you know, this person's only 23. I don't really want to image them if I don't have to. And that's I think that's the appropriate way of thinking about it as opposed to the other way where I think it has been before is, Uh, Who cares? It's just a CT head. So that barrier may hopefully be going down, down, down as people's risk tolerance of radiation or this risk of medical imaging technology in general, that it becomes an issue that people are a lot more aware of. So, Dr. Steele, we've talked about all the practicalities and theoretics of CDRs. Now let's get a little bit more into the actual CDRs. So first, let's talk about the most exciting stuff that you're doing now. Can you just tell us a little bit about your newest clinical decision instrument and how you think it'll change practice? So any new rule takes like 10 years. They don't just appear overnight. My current agenda are uh, the risk stratification for heart failure and COPD, and we have published the derivation of both, and we've now just finished the actual validation, and and it's kind of funny that the COPD validation study ended today, half an hour before you came in. Wow, hot off the press. It's pre-hot off the press. Yes, so we've enrolled uh, 1,500 patients in the validation of the COPD rule, and hopefully we'll get that analyzed soon, but it seems to have gone very well. So the heart failure scale originally had 10 items, and we, after our validation study, found that we could really tighten it up, and we've ended up with only six variables. And we plan then to do another minor validation of that, but where we really want to go with both rules, the COPD and heart failure, is to prove they work. So we want to do some big multi-center studies where the doctors actually are actively using them and we can evaluate the actual impact on patients. Our bottom line there is not to increase or decrease admission, is to improve the safety so there's fewer adverse events, particularly in patients that are sent home. Okay, so, so for those rules, you expect that in Canada it may it may actually increase the admission rate, but it's will be safer and say in somewhere like the U.S. it would decrease admission rates. Yeah, well, they'll safety. never use this in the U.S. because they they have so many economic and financial reasons for admitting people. It's the same with atrial fib; they admit admit everybody, and that's more for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. So I'm not thinking that the heart failure and COPD rules will change much in the U.S., but I think in Canada, it won't necessarily increase admission, but it'll make sure the right people are being admitted, those that are higher risk. Okay, and you talked about the six variables for CHF. We're going to have all this on the Emergency Medicine Cases website. In fact, we'll have all of the CDRs with all of the exclusion and inclusion criteria for everyone to refer to. But could you just tell us for CHF, what are some of the the key variables for that one? We found that when we validated the heart failure rule that having a history of a stroke or a history of intubation actually were no longer predictive, which 
It's a bit surprising, uh, especially the intubation, but it mm-hmm. seems that hardly anybody's intubated anymore for heart failure. So we that's couldn't show that hardly anybody had a history of it. So. That's interesting because the time that it takes to develop the rules, you know, maybe five, seven years ago, we were intubating quite a bit more CHF patients. Well, that's when Hans was a resident. That's he right. intubated on site. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was just the most exciting thing to do. So, yeah. Yay for BiPAP. <laughs> So the six variables in the final model now are IV nitrates is considered a high-risk characteristic. Troponin at five times the upper reference level because every hospital has their own reference level. High PCO2, high urea or creatinine, and flunking the walk test, which means that after you treat them, their resting vitals still show a SAT less than 90 or heart rate over 110 then they're too sick to walk, or you get them up and they can't walk for three minutes, then then that's a failure. We studied extensively NT Pro BNP. We have the world's largest series, and we found it doesn't do much to help you hmm. to predict outcome. Oh, my, and, my, and, buddy, wow. my buddy Brian Steinhardt. Yeah, so some hospitals are not going to want to hear that. <laughs> and a lot of cardiologists, um, in Canada, we don't use BNP to diagnose heart failure very much because we know how to do it. And lots of hospitals, like our own, they won't pay for it, so we can't get it other than for research purposes. I thought the quantitative value of the BNP would help predict bad outcomes, and it does to a certain extent, but it's not as good as these other six things. I'm curious, Dr. Steele, what was your gold standard for the diagnosis of CHF? Because it's my understanding that there's some pretty high inter-observer variability, so to speak, on the actual diagnosis. Sometimes it's not that clear. Well, yeah, the official, when you go from the different cardiology societies, heart failure is a clinical diagnosis, which is a constellation of symptoms of breathlessness combined with clinical findings of crackles, X-ray that shows heart failure, classic findings, and then response to therapy. And certainly we overcall heart failure because sometimes we see somebody short of breath and you think you see a couple curly beelines because you want to have something you can treat. So occasionally uh, we overcalled it. But we also ensured that their admitting diagnosis and echoes and whatnot were consistent with heart failure. I think a very interesting thing is what comes out of this is that the aspects that showed that the patient would be high risk makes so much sense. IV nitrate use, they can't walk, they're sitting there hypoxic, tachycardic, an elevated troponin that's well elevated, not sort of these little tiny, you know, troponitis or whatever it might be. It's nice to see that it actually makes sense. Once in a while, you, you'll you get some weird variable where you go, I, I don't know, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. But these sort of do seem to make sense, which is kind of nice as a practicing physician to go, hey, this makes sense in my brain. And it's easy to remember. And especially six things is going to be easier to remember <laughs> than 10. So that's CHF. We'll talk about COPD when we come back to the case. Dr. Steele, you had mentioned TIA and syncope as the hottest and newest topics. Jeff Perry is well published now in both his rules, subarachnoid hemorrhage, as well as the TIA risk scale, where you have this scale that really helps identify the risk of a stroke in the next seven days. And so far, it's performed extremely well and better than the one with the alphabet one, ABCD. So this one has great promise in terms of identifying patients with TIAs, which we see every day, in terms of who needs perhaps to see a neurologist and have imaging like right away. 
because most centers not easy to get all the tests done, the Dopplers and echocardiogram and, and access to a neurologist. So there's some patients that are super high risk that possibly should be transferred in or seen right away by the neurologist. Yeah, it's my understanding from talking about this with Dr. Selchin from St. Mike's who runs a stroke program there. We had talked about how the ABCD score simply says who might have a TIA and who might not. It doesn't really give you a risk stratification. The people who score low on the ABCD probably don't even have a TIA, and the people who score high, yes, they have a TIA, but they don't tell you who's really high risk. So this new one will actually tell you who's really high risk. Who well, it has a much wider range, but it's also in the validation seems to be much more accurate and discriminatory than the ABCD, Wow, which has gone through multiple variations, and maybe they're at a no secret one that's going to emerge suddenly. But these rules are made by emergency physicians for emergency physicians. So we try to make sure that they are sensible. They don't have weird things that, you know, my colleagues have never heard of, Mm -hmm. you know. So I would say this TIA rule, components of it make a lot of sense. And then it gives you quite a range of risk compared to other instruments for TIA. In his case, he doesn't want to just come with a risk scale. He, he's actually tying that to specific interventions. At this level, you know, you need to go to the stroke center and see a neurologist today. At this level, you know, order the outpatient stuff and put them on an antiplatelet agent. At this level, maybe they should just see their family doctor because we're not even sure it was a TIA. So again, that's useful, especially if you're working in a smaller center and as we know in Canada that are, you know, in smaller peripheral areas where it's a big deal to send somebody into the academic hospital to do a CT, to do a urgent neurology assessment and get echoes and holters. But if you can tell them, you know, by this criteria, by the TIA score scale, this person has a 65% chance of having a really bad outcome in the next week, this person should come in. That's a lot more convincing than saying, I need this guy to have a CT neuro. And you go, well, why can't you set that up there? I think it changes the conversation for a lot of people and not just helpful to the academic centers, but helpful, hopefully, for all of our colleagues. So let's get back to our case of the 60-year-old COPDer who comes in with sort of a classic COPD exacerbation, the hemoglobin's 95, they're doing pretty well and they want to go home after they've received some NEBs and steroids and antibiotics. Dr. Steele, could you just go over for us the new COPD risk stratification rule and tell us how we could apply it to a patient like that? Sure, and some of you may have noticed we published the Ottawa COPD risk scale in CMAJ in April of this year, and this score is based on 10 variables from history exam and simple tests, and you can have a a range of score from 0 to 16 points, and that can give you an overall risk of a serious adverse event within two weeks, somewhere between 2% and 91%, depending on the total score. So scanning our list of variables, the only one that this lady appears to have is the anemia. So we uh, interestingly identified that a hemoglobin less than 100 is very high risk and gives them three points right off the bat. Other ones are history of bypass graft, peripheral vascular disease, surgery, or intubation. 
She doesn't have that. Initial heart rate greater than 110. Unable to do the walk test after treatment. Ischemia on ECG. Concomitant heart failure on chest X-ray. Urea greater than 12. Uh, CO2 uh, greater than 35 or PCO2 over 60. So I don't think your case had anything other than the anemia. Right, the anemia. And let's say, we didn't mention the walk test, but let's say she had the anemia and you tried to get her up for a walk and she just didn't have the energy to get up Well, she was too short of breath to walk. Okay, well, that would increase her score by another two. So that would give her five points, which is getting up there. So she's in the very high risk category of 32.9% likelihood of an adverse event in the next two weeks. So that's worrisome because I would think, Most of us wouldn't even think about the hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us put a lot of stock into the walk test or whatever you call it locally, road test, whatever. And it's only a part of the puzzle. So if they have a lot of underlying severe comorbidity, you have to take that into account. Now, a patient with that kind of risk and who can only walk for a few steps is not going to manage well on her own at home. So I'm thinking overall, this is a patient that should be admitted to hospital. So you can actually talk with your colleagues in a manner where I think all of you can understand, and even the patient can understand. Once in a while, you have, you know, something simple like there's a one in three chance that something bad could happen. I think most of us can understand that whether you have a lower level or higher level of education, and it's a common language for everybody. Notice the word rule isn't on them, and these are meant to assist. So I think a tool is a a better description. It's part of the puzzle. And when we talked earlier about barriers, there are a few docs who just got their backs up as soon as they heard the word rule. That automatically alienated them because here we are telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. So we're not doing that anymore. (laughs) Right. It's all semantics after all. We got some crowdsourced questions from around the world through (laughs) social media and there are a whole bunch. This one's from Anand Swaminathan. Swami and I are in a think tank editorial board for the Teaching Institute together, and he's the co-creator of the EM Lysem blog. He asked, has the recent JAMA article from this year that shows an increased risk of stroke after cardioversion for new onset AFib after 12 hours, as opposed to the usual 48 hours, change your recommendation about how we should treat new onset AFib. Okay, so we're going totally off topic here, and and I'm happy with that because I'm totally into atrial fibrillation. But there was this small article in JAMA just a few weeks ago that analyzed a previous study from Finland where over a seven-year period they followed like 5,000 patients who'd been cardioverted within 48 hours and were not put on oral anticoagulants. And they found that overall there was a 1.1% incidence of stroke within a month, which is possibly higher than you'd like to think because we certainly advocate cardioversion either electrically or pharmacologically in the ED. The initial study showed that the risk was highest for patients with CHAD2 risk factors such as higher age, diabetes, hypertension, heart failure. So it's said those that have those factors actually are the ones at higher risk of having a stroke. And the new Canadian Cardiovascular Society Guidelines 2014 will be published next month, and in the ED chapter, which I helped write, we are really emphasizing now that you have to be aware of this patient's risk factors, the uh, CHADS2 score and their age, and you have to be prepared to start them on oral anticoagulants after you cardiovert them if they have even a single point or they're over 65. 
Okay, so that's the background to this new paper, which now says on the same data set that not only are these other things a risk, but also how soon after the onset do you cardiovert them? And they found that those that were cardioverted within the first 12 hours had the lowest risk, and those that were over 12 hours were at the higher risk end, and they didn't see any difference between 12 to 24 and 24 to 48 hours. So the question is, should we only cardiovert patients within the first 12 hours? And I have debated this at length with the panel members from the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. There's like 20 cardiologists and me, and they say, ah, <laughs> you know, we've been doing this forever, and it's just a little study, and so there's quite a bit of controversy, and we're writing a commentary that will be coming out soon on what we think, uh, but their opinion is that as long as you follow the new Canadian guidelines and aggressively apply oral anticoagulants after you cardiovert to people with a CHAD score of 1 or age 65, that you're doing the best thing for this patient. We know that if they're at or beyond 48 hours, we'll get a transesophageal echo and rule out left atrial thrombus to be sure. In some patients, you don't really know the time. I'm not sure what this new study, the bottom line will be. It's still very controversial. But the cardiology experts are not changing their mind that still under 48 is okay. And finally, before we go, I just have one question to ask you, Dr. Steele. Where did you come up with the Twitter handle Emo Daddy? Because Chris Hicks informed me just last night that Emo describes a particular genre of hardcore punk rock music characterized by melodic musicianship and expressive, often confessional lyrics. Tell me, Dr. Steele, are you not only the father of CDRs, but also the father of hardcore punk rock music? Yeah, that's me, hardcore punk. Now, this is audio only, so people can't see all my uh, nose rings. And, and if I roll up my sleeves, you'd see quite the artwork. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, actually, I never heard of emo. So, uh, <laughs> And I might say my handle is EMO, Daddy, okay. which is Emergency Medicine Ottawa. So... Do we think emo copied our uh, yeah, handle, probably. perhaps? Songs? Yeah. yeah I, I wonder what kind of tweets you're getting from the punk rockers. Uh, yeah, Once well, in a while, somebody, somebody yeah, sends you a song they, or a tune. They stumble yeah. over it by mistake, <laughs> and then they get off pretty fast. Yeah. Okay, well, to wrap it up, thank you so much, gentlemen, both of you. That was highly educational for me, and I'm sure will be for my listeners. Thanks for agreeing to do this. And I hope your COPD, heart failure, TIA, and syncope studies come to great help for emergency physicians worldwide. Cool. Thank you very much, Anton. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, you might not agree with everything that Dr. Steele said on this episode, that's even more reason why we'd like you to come and visit the Emergency Medicine Cases website and post your comments at the bottom of the episode pages. We are going to be using this episode as a springboard for an episode that we release early next year on decision-making in general with Chris Hicks, Walter Himmel, and Dave Dushensky. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.